we don't have that problem in the sense that we've already got some ideas as to what we would reopen with and, and how to get people back in. And, you know, obviously we would have limited capacity in the theater and you're already investing in precautions and things like that. But we don't know when that date will be. We just don't know, you know, and and it won't be, you know, if they were to announce today, okay, you can open on Friday. We're not reopening until, you know, we feel that enough is in place, enough has been discussed to where I feel like it is a safe thing to do. What that is, I don't know. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content for movie theaters. And I'm joined by my co-host, Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro Magazine. It's nice to talk to you again, Rebecca. Nice as always. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to jump right into it because uh, this week we have a great interview with Logan Crow, the founder, curator, and executive director of the Frida Cinema, which is a two-screen nonprofit in Orange County, California. As a Los Angeles resident, the Frida has been on my radar for a long time. They have terrific programming, and they're also just far enough from me that I can't easily get there. So I'm excited to talk to Logan about what they're doing because it's sort of a so close but so far away kind of cinema for me. First, we're going to start with big news courtesy of Disney, which came out a couple of days ago, which is that Mulan, the movie that was originally planned as a spring release and then was penciled in as a big post-COVID reopening movie, is now going to PVOD on Disney Plus for $29.99. According to Disney representatives, you actually get perpetual access to the movie so long as you remain a Disney Plus subscriber, which on one hand makes it seem like a more expensive PVOD option than virtually anything else from a major studio right now, but is also giving you a significantly different access to the movie because it's not a a rental. Rebecca, let's talk about Mulan. Let's talk about Mulan. Uh, I mean, I would rather talk about the original animated Mulan because I really like it instead of of this mess, but... (laughs) It is a mess. It's a mess. The original is really charming. It's it's got that kind of late '90s Disney animation where it's like, oh, this looks a little sketchy, but the characters are good, the songs are good. You know, it's got a big battle sequence. Mulan is a cool hero. What more do you want? Yeah, they don't end the movie getting married. They're just like, yeah, we'll go on a date. We'll figure it out. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so for for now, Mulan, uh, like you mentioned, it's it's going to Disney Plus at a price point of of just under thirty bucks. Um, that's in addition to whatever fee you're paying to access Disney Plus. And then if you in the future stop accessing, stop subscribing rather to Disney Plus, you don't have Mulan anymore. I know this isn't the purpose of the podcast, but this is why physical media is important for your home video <laughs> options. <laughs> buy DVDs, buy Blu-rays. Yes, I'm a big uh, proponent of physical media myself, much to my wife's chagrin when it comes time to pack up and move her house. But I mean, obviously, there was a lot of chatter about this, a lot of people uh, speculating on, on what this means. I think something that's important to note, obviously, we've seen, I'm going to be real real technical and precise here, a bazillion release changes over the past couple months. And Mulan is the only one that I know of that came during a quarterly investor relations call that Disney had. And in that quarterly investor relations call, uh, the CEO announced that Disney had uh, had lost literally billions of dollars <laughs> uh, 
largely because obviously uh, their parks weren't weren't able to open and, and they've only just reopened and in, in some areas and are seeing much you know limited attendance. So for me, coming the way that announcement did and the timing, I definitely kind of read it as we're telling our investors we lost a ton of money and we need something, you know, splashy and positive to say like, look, we're going to have, you know, they just crossed the hundred million subscribers mark. And, you know, and we're going to be, a lot of those people are going to give us 30 bucks a pop for access to Mulan starting, uh, you know, early September. So, so that's how it read to me. You know, the busy CEO said that this is going to be a one-off thing, that this is not indicative of, of a ongoing strategy when it comes to windows. You know, definitely, I think anything that a CEO says in an investor call kind of has to be taken with a little grain of salt because they're certainly, you know, wanting to present everything in a very positive, don't worry, we're not going to lose your money way. But maybe this is, is naive in me, but I cannot imagine them continuing this to Black Widow, which is the next big feature that Disney has on the calendar. It's not until November. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is this is certainly not a good thing for theater owners no. uh, who, who who wanted that new content and needed it desperately. You know, at the same time, I, I'm hopeful that this isn't uh, a new like standard operating procedure type thing for them. Not that it's good, which it's it's uh, not. I, I'm, I'm certainly not a fan of that decision. Yeah, and I think that's an astute reading overall that that this uh, Mulan play is maybe less uh, a of sea change in terms of windowing and more a little bit of Vegas illusionist stagecraft trying to redirect our attention away from the stuff they don't want us paying attention to. And, you know, it, it, this comes on the heels of course of the one and only Ivan going to Disney plus, but I mean, let's be realistic. That movie had precisely zero marketing push behind it. It kind of seemed like a surprising theatrical release to begin with. So I don't think anybody like Ar- was- Artemis Fowl. Was anybody looking forward to seeing Artemis Fowl in theaters? Apologies to Kenneth Branagh, who definitely listens to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> when we get Kenneth's angry email, I will, you know, be the one who is responds, who deals with that. I mean, obviously, uh, Disney Plus moved. Uh, Hamilton was moved to Disney Plus, which is the the most I think kind of high profile, high profile thing that's happened. So you know, it's 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 one in a string. The thing that I'm curious about is you know it's going to disney plus but is it going exclusively to disney plus they've said that they'll allow it to screen in certain uh, you know international territories that don't have access to disney plus but i mean we know that there are there are drive-in theaters and independent theaters that for example screen trolls will tour right will theaters be allowed to screen mulan if they want to as i'm sure many of them will because uh, you know everyone's desperate for content that for me is the, is the real question here. That's an interesting question. And I, I know that the, you know, you and I were talking about this not too long ago. And I, I know that the one bit of language I saw from Disney said that in markets in which Disney Plus is not available, Milan will be available to play theatrically. So there's that. And then, of course, the conversation that we're about to play with Logan from the Frida, we recorded prior to this news breaking. And he mentions in that conversation, as you'll hear, that they do play some PVOD titles because they're a nonprofit. They're not a first-run theater. So if nothing else, I wonder if some theaters like that might be available or might be able to play 
Mulan? That's a huge question. It's a good one. Uh, and we don't have an answer. I'm, I'm not optimistic on it. I mean, given what you said, Disney's wording about, you know, you can play in, in markets where there is no Disney Plus and the United States is not one of those markets. Right. Hamilton didn't screen in any drive-ins. It's a good point. Artem's Fowl didn't screen in any drive-ins. <laughs> they so, were going I back mean, to that... like, the, you know, did nobody play Artemis Fowl because they couldn't play Artemis Fowl or did nobody want to play Artemis Fowl? You know, we can we can do that chicken and the egg puzzle until the end of time. <laughs> let's, uh, we, but we don't need to do that. Instead, let's talk about Marcus and Cinemark, uh, which have both now done their own calls in which they announced August reopening plans. Rebecca, what are the details there? We'll just say all three of these calls came on the same day. All the news we're talking about came on the same day. It was a very busy day. It was a busy day. <laughs> just say that. So basically, the news for, for Marcus and Cinemark. Cinemark, uh, the third largest exhibitor in the United States, has already opened uh, 15 quote-unquote test-and-learn locations. And now they're going to start opening uh, the remainder of their locations on August 21st. Uh, so... One third on the 21st, one third a couple days later on the 25th, and one third a couple days later on the 28th. Marcus, the fourth largest exhibitor in the United States, they didn't get specific with dates, but it's basically the same thing where they said we're going to start opening in late August. That puts both of those chains in line uh, in line with AMC and Regal. AMC's also said mid to late August. Regal starting to open on August 21st. Basically, everything is kind of lining up around that first wave of releases, uh, Unhinged, uh, New Mutants, and uh, Tenet over Labor Day weekend, you know, in certain markets where it's safe to open Tenet on Labor Day weekend. So really, there's there's nothing surprising here. It does seem to me like we're not going to see another shift in released in, in, in reopening dates uh, from these from these major U.S. exhibitors, you know, it's looking like August twenty first, late August. This is this is going to be it for uh, for these majors to open. Of course, barring states and markets where where government regulations say they can't. So yeah, that's uh, that, that's been the, that was the news last Tuesday. And it, was a, it was a busy day. Busy day. It's been a busy week uh, in a busy season. But for now. We're going to go from the majors to an independent theater. We've spoken a lot on this podcast about independent cinemas, whether they're art house cinemas, independents that play first run Hollywood film, second run holiday film, cultural centers that also screen movies. They're a vital part of the communities they serve. They provide diversity in programming. And compared to a lot of larger chains in North America, they are perhaps uniquely threatened by the current landscape and the current shutdown. I'm speaking today with Logan Crow, founder, curator, and executive director of the Frida Cinema, which is one of those independent cinemas that's really proven essential for its community. It's a two-screen nonprofit art cinema located in Orange County, California. Uh, and Russ, I believe you're already familiar with the Frida, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Logan, your programming is terrific. And, you know, the newsletter that my wife and I ran and will once again eventually run, uh, Marquee LA, has spotlighted some of the Frida's programming in the past as we try to direct people to a whole variety of different movie options around Los Angeles. Logan, thanks so much for being on this podcast. We spoke shortly after the Frida shut down in, in mid-March. And, you know, I just want to ask you to reflect back on those first couple weeks because 
you jumped right into it with a streamathon and with sort of continuing to to promote the Frida and keep it connected with its audience. Just looking back at those first few weeks, like what were you trying to do? Did you ever think that you would still be closed now with, with no reopening date in the works, really, for theaters in California? Gosh, no, <laughs> not to this level. No, I mean, I, you know, we were keeping our aware of what was going on and the the growth of the virus and, you know, and coupled with that, just how little we seem to know, people seem to know about how it spread and how it was contagious. And so, you know, our dialogues about we may need to close for a bit started early. And, you know, even before we ultimately decided to close, we were already starting to talk about should we limit capacity and, and started to think about how we would start, you know, implement that. And then in early March, I think the first week of March, we just made a decision. And we said, you know, I think that, you know, we, we haven't been told we have to. I feel like that's around the corner. And either, even if it's not, you know, as much as our mission is important to all of us, obviously we're film lovers, we love what we do. The safety of our patrons, our staff, our volunteers, our youth volunteers is very important. So we closed on March 13th. And really the two biggest priorities for me immediately and even before we closed were how do I take care of my staff and make sure that they are taken care of and how do we keep our mission going you know how do we continue to program how do we continue to you know our mission is to enrich connect and entertain communities through the art of cinema and we looked at all of those you know directly how do we keep connected to our patrons and keep them connected to each other so our social media needs to not slow down and we need to be more conversational with it and give folks the sense that their community of fellow film lovers is still alive and active. And then the entertainment enriching part was how do we keep the films going? How do we keep providing people with access to films that they wouldn't otherwise be getting? And fortunately to that end, uh, we're now six years and running as an annual member and participant of the Art House Convergence, which is you know an incredible assembly of, I want to say well over 500 independent theaters. At the very least, I know there's more than 500 delegates that come out, but it's this incredible uh, group of theaters, distributors, and film festivals that keep together throughout the year, um, share their resources, share their stories. And through that, we saw that a lot of, I think first was Kino Lorber, was starting to already look at releasing their new films via streaming in such a way that the art house could make a revenue share off every rental of the film. And what was interesting was we were already starting to look at Vimeo and already starting to call some distributors. Hey, is there some way maybe with your newer, smaller films that we can stream them? And, you know, we were either getting no's, you know, not sure if we're going to do that or we're looking at that. But Kino Lorber was quick. Um, their film was called Baku Rao. It was already a film we were looking to stream. And then there was a film called The Wild Goose Lake that we were excited about that we had actually programmed an entire series of films around it's sticking to the neon aesthetic of the film. It was called our neon nightmare series that we had to cancel. Fortunately, film movement who put that film out also launched a video on demand platform. So right off the bat, as soon as we closed, we sort of switched gears. We pivoted and started to provide folks opportunities to see releases that we would have otherwise opened up the Frida online at home. And that was, I think, the first sort of transition we made before we started launching the drive. You have a, a really 
robust virtual theatrical slate. I, I don't know if it'll still be offered by the time this podcast is published, but Oscilloscopes We Are Little Zombies, I think is really fun if anyone's looking for a quirky Japanese punk musical. <laughs> it's such a good movie. I am glad you brought that up. I am so in love with that film. So I saw a screener of it about three weeks before we opened it, and I just went absolutely gaga over it. I saw it twice in two days. I don't remember the last time I did that with a new film. And, you know, I have championed it. I made a special point in the newsletter. You're going to watch one movie that we're streaming. You know, we watch all of them, but please watch this one. It's fantastic. It's a fantastic film. I'm glad that others are seeing it and getting experience to see it. It's one of those movies that I really mourned its inability to open on big screens the way it deserves. It's so visual and so it's, yeah, I could spend the whole podcast talking about it, but I won't. So yes, we are little zombies. Check it out. Yes. For those who have been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll have heard Daniel Champion Baccarat a couple of times. And we actually talked to Kino Lorber and did a whole rundown of virtual theatrical way back in like our second or third episode. So for more info on that, you can look back into our archives and obviously a, a big subject for us throughout the year. And I give these distributors an awful lot of credit from the very beginning because they could have easily taken the route of making deals with Amazon and Netflix, Hulu, who obviously have a much wider range of viewership than an independent cinema's outreach or the collective outreach of independent cinemas. But in our dialogues with them and you know, just in the mere gesture of how they did this, but also in dialogue with them from the get go, I think they've been aware as have we, and I'm sure we'll get to that, of just how this might affect theaters and specifically just how this might affect independent theaters. And so rather than go that route, they created this platform where, no, we're not going to give our film to Hulu. We're going to partner with art houses and in a way that the art house can stay sustained with you know viewership tickets, uh, rental streaming, whatever you want to call it, of the films. Um, so I have been very, very vocal about how much I admire that these distributors took that route because for a lot of us, I mean, it really has been our, you know, a primary source of revenue while we can't invite people into the theater. I was just going to ask if you took advantage of IFC's program where they were offering movies with no rental fee to independent cinemas during the shutdown. Well, we haven't reopened. So we haven't, you know, um, we definitely want to. And as a matter of fact, we're even looking at potentially incorporating a couple of IFC titles into our drive-ins. But that involves one obstacle that we're still having regarding finding a space that will allow for more avant-garde, less family-friendly outdoor film. But no, we saw that. We thought it's fantastic and uh, that they're offering that. Uh, I know the Babadook, which we've screened a few times, will definitely be making an appearance at the Frida when we reopen. But no, I, that's a perfect example of how these distributors have gone above and beyond to, to keep us open. And, you know, we work with a lot of the major distributors as well because we do a lot of retro. So we, we don't open new films from major studios, but we certainly will play an Exorcist or a Goonies here and there. And, you know, we love those studios, but I, I cannot say that the concessions that are being thrown our way and art houses ways are coming from anything but your smaller independent label studios. And we just, you know, we're, we're holding each other up as much as we can. I definitely am interested to hear from you about virtual theatrical because not only is it wonderful that companies like Kino, like Oscilloscope are doing this, but it feels like it really does kind of open up, you know, you're 
two-screen theater and, and you're able to program things that you wouldn't necessarily have had the space or the show times to program before. So what have been the virtual theatrical titles that have done the best for you in the last couple of months? And I'm just wondering, have any of them gotten you proceeds comparable to what like a normal run of a film would have in person? They haven't. And, you know, and I didn't frankly think that they would to that level because A, it's a new platform. B, um, you know, unless you have found a way to connect your computer to your television, whether that's HDMI or for casting, a lot of folks don't like watching. I certainly don't like watching movies on my computer screen or on my phone. Now, mind you, I find out more and more that some people do and, and good on them. Um, but moreover, the options are limitless on streaming. I mean, you've got so many streaming channels that are available, and then obviously the major ones, thousands of thousands of titles. And so there's a lot of competition there. So from the get-go, we knew that this would be a way to bring in some revenue, but you know, there was never the anticipation of this will keep us active and alive and push us through to our reopening. But we have had some successes. The Wild Goose Lake is still our number one film. And again, I think that was helped by the fact that that was a film that we had been pushing really hard because we were planning to open it. And, and like I said, had built a whole series around it with Drive and a couple of other titles. Um, the Wolf House is our number two. And, and I think when I get through these titles, I'll point out a, something that really speaks to our audience. But Wild Goose Lake was number one. The Wolf House, uh, which is this very dark stop motion uh, animation film, uh, very political, very fantastic. Baku Rao at number three. Cinestate put out a horror film called Porno that was um, distributed or championed by Fangoria. That's our number four. And then a documentary called The Booksellers was number five. And, you know, I think what they speak to is really our audience. You know, you've got two horror films, a stylish uh, noir, neo-noir film, a documentary and a, you know, sort of uh, Bakurao. How do we even describe it? Such a fantastic movie. <laughs> a genre-bending political uh, thriller uh, that's very funny at the same time. And, you know, it's no surprise. I mean, that would be sort of what rose to the top. I've always been a big proponent of programming should be somewhat organic. You should see what your audience demands and what their interests are and sort of take a you know, we program very, very, very diversely, but we are always looking at what are people responding to. And, you know, easily our biggest demographics are, you know, more avant-garde films, horror and genre films, anime, LGBT and documentary films. So that's been evidenced even by the successes of the streaming. We are not your Merchant Ivory Theater. We have certainly played Merchant Ivory films. I mean, I'm not mocking them. Those are just not films that people respond to here as much as some of them have been fantastic. And, you know, oh, you got to come see this. And, you know, films with an edge, I think, have really sort of, um, not to say that Merchant Ivory isn't edgy, but, but you know, more of the... Why do, why do you titles. hate Merchant Ivory? Logan? I don't hate Merchant Ivory. <laughs> I love Morris. <laughs> uh, Howard's End, Remains of the Day, good stuff. No, I don't. I, um, well, gosh, James Ivory just wrote Paul, you know, calling by your name. So how could I hate them? Um, no, I, uh, it's just, that's my go-to. But yeah, no, we've tried and we, you know, and they just don't do as well. We still play them from time to time. It's, they're great. We want to share them and certainly some folks come out, but we had those in our streaming as well, more serious international fare. And we push them just as hard and people just don't respond to them as much. But, you know, in keeping with that, that continues to be, you know, the challenge going back to um, your question about IFC that we're having with our drive-ins, which, you know, we, now we have a very popular roaming drive-in series that has been a blast to put on. 
um, but we still haven't been able to program some of the types of titles that would normally do well for us because we still haven't identified a space that is welcoming to more R-rated or genre type films. But we're working on that. And then certainly we'd see some more IFC titles there. It's, but, it's family uh, stuff, right? Mostly for your drive-in. I mean, really, really Wonka. Yes, exactly. I mean, the nature of the drive-in it was and is to kind of be roaming. We call it our pop-up drive-in series. So we've been uh, basically partnering with different venues throughout Orange County to produce a drive-in event on their location. So I think we've been to five or six different locations now. We've got a seventh in the works, some that we do, we just did once, some that we're doing repeated events at. But the commonality is that either because of their location and their accessibility to you know people that aren't there to see the movie and or the nature of their location. So one of them is a elementary school baseball event. We definitely you know need to keep things family friendly there. Because of these two things, we just haven't been able to play more of our tried and true, you know, R-rated or, or genre film. You're not playing society at a at an elementary school. <laughs> we are not playing society at an elementary school. Yes. Society and solo will have to wait. It's kind of ironic that, you know, the classic image of the drive-in is home for exploitation and sort of outre genre films. But in this modern era, it has, by necessity, been a very family-friendly endeavor. Right. Because the thing with your traditional drive-in venue, so if you are, you know, in a, um, you know, an enclosed location, you know, where the only people that have access to what's on the screen are the people that are parked in their cars, you know, you can do that, you know, when you are in, and let's, you know, the baseball diamond is one thing, but let's, you know, there's another venue that I think would be open to this, but they are right on the side of the street. So everyone that's within the gate, you know, that's watching something, they know what they're getting into, but if someone were to be walking their dog outside and they see something on the screen that is, you know, graphic, you know, we have potentially uh, public indecency, whatever you call it. So, you know, that's something we're sensitive to. So we're looking, we've been looking for, a, you know, a venue maybe that's like in an industrial area, you know, behind a building or a brewery, had some sort of potentials brewing right now. So we're, we're seeing how it goes. But yeah, at the same time, I remember a drive-in in, in uh, Torrance that you could see from the football field of my high school. It was right across the street, right across Torrance Boulevard. And, you know, they were playing Porky's 3 and we could just sit up there and see everything. You're right. You're right. There was a time where it was a lot more permissive, but I get it. You know, I totally get it. I totally get that, especially with these venues. I mean, they are, they are you know, providing us land to do these things at. We're definitely not being picky. <laughs> but, you know, there are some opportunities that we are ourselves passing up on that, you know, I would just love to, to see make happen. So I feel like it's on the horizon, but, but I can't complain. I mean, we've been very lucky to have this, you know, alternate opportunity to keep programming going. And it's very, very, very focused on keeping it as social distance safe as possible. You know, everything down to the tickets are pre-sold. They, everyone gets the barcode. They hold it up at their window. We scan them in. They don't even have to lower their window or hand anything to us or get anything handed to them. Um, they're very much structured in such a way that the only reason somebody needs to leave their car is if they need to use the restroom or if they want to grab a bite. Other than that, the sound is being pumped in through their FM radio. They don't need to lower their window for the sound thing to hang there. That is the only way that I would even have proceeded with any sort of non-theatrical programming is if everything was in place to keep everyone as safe as possible. And in terms of community building, it's an interesting opportunity because 
you're working with a school, you're working with these different uh, locations and or organizations, and therefore maybe exposing the Frida to people who potentially weren't customers of yours, who weren't part of your audience. And I'm curious to see if you might have any indication that you're helping kind of build a base that might still be loyal in some way if you do get to reopen. Uh, most definitely. What we've noticed is that our social media following um, and our newsletter signups have, ridden, have risen substantially. We don't add our ticket buyers to our newsletter list. You know, we don't just automatically do that. People need to opt in. But in our emails to them, when they buy tickets, we you know provide the link, you know, please sign up and keep posted. So we've seen an increase on our subscription for our newsletters. We've seen a pretty substantial increase on our social media following that we can only attribute to the drive-ins and to the press the drive-ins have been getting. So that's been great. And then we do hear from people who either email us or approach us and say, hey, thanks, you know, we weren't aware of you guys. and This has been great. So, you know, we really, really love hearing that. We see a lot of regulars at our events, um, but we also see a lot of new faces and people from the community and certainly our host venues are marketing their followings. So those folks are coming. So no, it definitely, definitely has provided great opportunity to share our, our mission and our brand to new communities. There are a lot of exhibitors that have kind of opened up pop-up drive-ins, whether independents or some big chains are doing it as well. Freed is doing something I'm not familiar with any other exhibitors doing, though they might have done that, which is that you're offering your drive-in equipment to rent to other companies is there has there been interest in that? Is is uh, have have people been taking you up on it? Has that proven like a nice little third or fourth source of income during this time? There has. You know, I, I like to be fair to a fault, maybe, but, but no, I, I like to be very fair, and I am always quick to express to potential rentals. You know, renting equipment and paying licensing fee. It's very hard to make an income when you're renting out. You know, uh, a gear unless you've got either A, alternate sources of income at your event, like food or drinks or whatnot, or B, you know, you're, you're charging an arm and a leg per car. Where it has made sense and where we've been rented out is corporations and venues that just want to have a private event, whether it's for their staff or it's a private event for a client. And, you know, they've got a budget for it. Let's say they've got a marketing budget or they've got an event budget that they need to spend on or they've already had allocated. And the intent isn't to make funds, but to just have the event. So we have been rented out. Um, and then at that level, they're just paying the flat rate for the title and then our production fee. So, yeah, we have had a couple of luck there. But in terms of folks who reach out, hey, you know, we're looking to do a fundraiser or we're looking to have our own event and make ticket revenue. You know, I'm very quick to say, how big is your space? You know, okay, let me let me tell you why this may not be the best idea for you. Yeah, it's, you know, because it's just, it's a numbers game. The distributors, that's always going to be the big chunk, you know, and, and depending on who you're working with and what film you want to play, you know, you do have some smaller distributors and some, you know, independent filmmakers, let's say, who still control their own title or, or smaller genre films that will work with, with you on the exhibition fee. But if you're looking to play a, a Disney or a Fox film, it's just you're you're going to pay fifty percent. Exactly half of what you sell in tickets is going to go right back to the studio. And yeah, it just makes it cost prohibitive. It's just that simple. So no judgments. It's just it won't work. So even as a company that is producing our own events, when we do our own uh, events, we have not played some you know larger studio films, not because we don't want to, and not out of some sense of boo on them. It just makes no sense this way. 
that's just that's all there is to it. You know, we mentioned earlier, we were talking about how, you know, we do a little news recap at the head of the show and we're going to wait to do it until we're closer to airing this because the news changes all the time. Obviously, the big news this week has been the AMC and Universal deal. While you guys don't necessarily run first run studio product, I'm curious to know if you see any potential ramifications of shortened theatrical windows that would affect the Frida in the long run. Not necessarily, and, and interestingly, not in an adverse way. If anything, I see potentials where, because of how we present films, it could have the opposite effect and, and be advantageous. So I'll give you a perfect example with a universal title, Cats. You know, when Cats came out, I went to see Cats, <laughs> and my mind, yeah, I, my mind was blown uh, my sister and I both went to see it because we saw the musical. We're very pro cats on this podcast, by the way, just to let you know who you're talking to. And I immediately saw a cult late night possibility with it and immediately reached out to my rep there and said, hey, you know, we would love to do cats. And, you know, we were told that that's great. But, you know, as an art house who wants to do it as a standalone sort of event night, we have to wait until its theatrical window is done. So we waited, I think, two months two and a half months to three months and then fortunately our rep you know we have a good relationship. so he actually emailed hey cats is available if you still want to do it i'm like absolutely and then we had a, a great screening of cats that sold out and then we did it again and it sold out and it was a blast they were fun people were clapping along and screaming and sharing and you know we preface each one with an introduction where it's like you know this is not the screening where you need to be reverent for the people around you who are here to watch it with a very serious intent this is your opportunity to just go nuts. And, you know, this is a film that will take you down a rabbit hole or a cat hole if you'd like. And, and, you know, and they were a blast. So when I'm looking at this, you know, interestingly enough, you know, I'm seeing where, you know, we have also have the ability to play films that are on VOD because we are independent, we're nonprofit. And so there have been films along the way that we have. Yeah, Mandy, I think, is a perfect example. Mandy is still our number one grossing film since we opened our doors seven years ago, next to Rocky Horror, you know, which doesn't kind of count because, you know, we played every month. But I mean, for a while, you were the only place to see Mandy in the greater Los Angeles area theatrically. Yeah, I chased it down. I knew that it would be perfect for the venue. And when it was finally picked up, I reached out and they were great to work with. And I fully thought that we would be in some sort of a war to play it, uh, that we would have to be told, ah, oh, you know, sorry, we're going to have to delay it because, and it came to us just way too easily. And then come to find out we were the only ones. And for two weeks, it was our, yeah, it was our juggernaut. It was a juggernaut. Uh, the first week, two weeks, you know, we generally don't hold new releases for more than a week. Sometimes two, if we think they would do very well, like we held train to Busan, I think for two weeks, cause I knew that it would be doing well. Cause no one really wanted to play it down here. And it, I think that's our third biggest film. We ended up holding Mandy for four weeks and, you know, we have two screens, which makes that easier to do, but it just would not slow down. And that was a film that in part, we were the only ones in town to play, not just because I guess maybe we were ahead of that one, but also because maybe some theaters that were familiar with it and would have played it have clauses that said they couldn't because it was on shutter at the same time. 
And even knowing that it was going to be on Shutter, I still thought it would do well. I never thought it would do as well as it did. No way. But I played it even though I knew it was opening on Shutter. And so um, we've done that a few times. And so, um, you know, I would imagine that once a movie like Cats is on VOD, that it's now basically, you know, a second run or it's, you know, the accessibility is there to where theaters that want to play it that are more like ours that are, you know, one shot, you know, weekend screenings would have that possibility. Having said that, that does not encapsulate my full feelings about the universal AMC thing, but that just answers your question of how it might affect us. The only way that it would affect us directly, I think, in terms of the immediate is just maybe quicker access to some newer releases that for some reason we want to play. Although that's very rare. I mean, Cats is a perfect example, but it wasn't because we thought Cats was an extraordinary film that should be shared with everyone for its merits. It was more Cats is an experience that should be shared with everyone for the merits of the experience that is watching Cats. That makes total sense. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to me as part of this whole conversation of the intersection of independent films and VOD. You know, if more and more films start going to VOD, do you have a parasite? Do you have something that just builds this momentum, builds this word of mouth over a period of months and eventually make a ton of money. And it, and it sounds like your experience with Mandy, though on a smaller scale than what happened with Parasite, you know, even though it was on VOD at the same time, people wanted, it feels like specifically wanted to see it, well, or just wanted to see it in the theater. Well, that's the thing. That's our audience. So, you know, if we were to, for example, that it happens every once in a while on social media where we'll put up a, you know, The Shining, let's say, okay, come see The Shining, new, you know, gorgeous restoration of The Shining. Maybe once a month, once every couple months, someone will chime in. I have this on, v, you know, on DVD. Why would I go see it on the screen? And we never respond to that because everyone else does. We just let the social media following jump right in and say whatever they feel they need to say, whether it's diplomatic and constructive or, or they want to be rude, which we hope they won't be. But, you know, they answer that question for them. It's, you know, and, and at the same time, it's not an empirical answer. There's no right or wrong to it. Some people are fine just watching the film at home, but it is a pastime for some folks. And, you know, it is an experience. You can watch a concert film at home or you can watch the concert, you know, in, in real life. It's a, it's a different experience. And so, you know, our audience is an audience that appreciates the experience of watching a film theatrically, whether that's the experience of seeing it wide and hearing it being encompassed by it or being with an audience of fellow people that are that you're writing the movie with or both. That's who our audience is. And so that doesn't change. And I think that when I look at things like this, you know, I I look at the kind of films we program and the kind of programming we do. And I'm like, you know, this doesn't really directly affect our programming in any way. What it does concern me about is obviously the the legacy and the importance of movie theaters. From a perspective of movie theaters built these studios, you know, movie theaters are the history of where these films premiered, the international pastime that is going to the movies, you know, certainly not in every country, but, you know, it's, it's, it's an experience, it's a thing, you know, and it's history. And, you know, I do understand and empathize about this feeling of eschewing that you know, for the ease of dollars in the sense of they've realized now through COVID, oh, wow, there's money to be made at home. And we didn't have to ship out a bunch of DCP drives and we didn't have to put posters up all over the place. And we didn't have to buy billboards. People just stayed home and watched Trolls too. This is great. Let's do that. It is unfortunate in the sense of I really do think it sort of discredits and devalues the movie theaters that built that. At the same time, 
they're a business. And, uh, you know, I hate to think that way, but it's like, you know, somebody was asking me recently, like, how do you feel about it? And I'm like, I have a bunch of reasons in my heart and in my stomach that I'm really upset by it, but Universal is a business. And if they found a different model that might work for them, then, you know, what can we say at the end of the day? They're a business that is churning out material and they found a way to release that material in a new platform from a, whatever you want to call it, moralist, emotional, I don't know, standpoint. I think it's a shame to take the theaters out of the equation that have been so important to the legacy of that studio and films in general. But I don't know that they have a quote unquote responsibility to keep those theaters in mind. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it does. I don't know that they have that responsibility. I'm upset by it. I think it is a threat to change. I am not an anti-chain kind of guy. Look, I run an independent nonprofit art house, but I was raised in chains. I still go to chains. I'm, I'm a popcorn eaten, you know, first run junkie too. And I worry about the AMCs and the Cinemarks. And when I say that, I think that the Frida, because it's different in the way it programs and the way it works with the community is going to be okay. I still freak out about the idea of my industry in any way, shape or form, whether it's independent art houses or giant corporations like AMC hurting right now, because at the end of the day, we're all essentially in the same industry. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a sad sort of evolution, I guess. As part of the you know the movie going and movie supporting community in Los Angeles, what's interesting to me is that this year has been marked by two. Personally, it's been marked by two significant possible sea changes. Where on one hand you have Netflix finalizing the purchase of the Egyptian in Hollywood, and primarily taking over the programming of that theater while leaving the weekends to the American Cinematheque, and then on the other hand you have Universal moving headlong into the PVOD space. So you've got these two edges of the business sort of crisscrossing one another in the way that they're changing their approach to things. And I don't have some big, grand, or even tidy summation of what that means, but I do take those two things as evidence that all of these things that we considered to be set in stone about this business are not. And that is ultimately the big lesson of this year, as we've discussed here multiple times, but COVID just sort of accelerated a lot of changes that were already in the wings. Well, and the other thing too that I that I think about is, you know, thinking back to so many art house convergences where the conversation of should your art house necessarily be a nonprofit? Like how integral is that? Because I think even though the majority of memory serves when we did our last statistics are nonprofits, not all of them are. And I can think of many conversations I had sitting in roundtables with theaters or that were either established for-profit theaters or people who were looking to start an independent theater who were on the fence and saying, there's a lot of successful for-profit theaters out there. You know, there are, you could still have a membership. You could still do a lot of the things that nonprofit theaters do. You know, the one big difference is there are a lot of grants that won't be accessible to you and your donors won't get a tax deduction. But I don't know how many of the donors that donate $10, $20 to me throughout the year or to the Frida, I should say, necessarily take advantage of that tax deduction. I don't know how important that is to them. You know, certainly some of the larger donors, sure, but you can still advocate for that. At that level, I am worried now about for-profit theaters, because if I can safely say that if we were not a 501c3 over the last four months, we would be in major trouble right now. I don't know that I would still even be able to have had my entire staff um, still employed to this day, because a lot of what held us through wasn't just the streaming and the drive-ins, 
but have been grants and donations. We are still very actively writing grants almost on a daily basis and making calls and, and, and getting support at that level. You know, we have a donation link on the website and that has kept us sustained, that has kept the programming going, that has kept the staff paid and their insurance paid. And that I've been worried about when it comes to art houses. You know, will they be able to sustain as these venues where let's just say, you know, our most negative and fearful opinions about things like AMC Universal come true and theater is now vinyl, basically, you know, we still have our record shops. We still have our collectors. You know, we might still have our art houses that are keeping this old pastime alive where you could see these movies on the big screens. But when I think about what would it take for me as the executive director of one of these to sustain that, my first place goes to grants, program grants. So this is our mission. We are keeping the cinematic experience alive. I do worry about smaller for-profit theaters. Like, you know, they will almost exclusively rely on their programming and their um, their memberships or whatever they can. So yeah, I mean, it's, I think that's going to be a lot that's going to be affected. The uncertainty of it all is probably the worst thing. I look at the Frida as a cinema that you had plates spinning in the air from the jump. I mean, you have the streamathon, you have fundraiser, blog, virtual theatrical, drive-ins, grants. I feel like you as an art house cinema have been doing everything that you can do right now. It's like you haven't left many stones unturned. Given that, I mean, it might be a, how much longer can you do this? Without a new Mandy, without being able to screen a movie, with the numbers being in California, what they are, with there being no content. I'll tell you, we have a three-day virtual board retreat this weekend, and that's actually one of our big things is how much longer can, not just the freedom, but how much longer can Logan keep doing this? Look, at, we'll keep doing it as long as we can. I mean, I, I don't know when we're reopening. And, and, you know, when we closed in March, we had a sign up on the window. We'll see you in late April slash early May. And I think part of us really, well, we were told if everyone stays indoors for two or three weeks, we'll get this thing kicked. And, you know, foolish me, I thought people would actually do that. And, you know, a lot of us did and a lot of us didn't. And here we are. And so, you know, the, there'll be books about this one day, about how ridiculously political this all became and, and how it just, you know, caused this thing to linger. And, you know, and here we are. And it's, you know, August, essentially. And we don't have a target reopening date. We have we have not set one since then. Because even in late August, you know, we had a meeting, should we say June? I'm like, we, we can't. We, anything we say is going to get pushed back. I'm telling you right now. You know, me and a couple of people just knew it. Like, there's, there's no point. And even when California, you know, announced, okay, theaters, you could reopen on Friday. I was like, it's not safe yet. It's not only not safe yet, but we'll be told in two weeks we have to close. And, and it was, I think, three weeks. But, you know, um, it would be like tenant, push it back two weeks, yeah, push it, it back just, two weeks, you know, push it back two weeks. You know, and the fortunate thing for us is that because we program curatorially, you know, a lot of people have been saying, you know, it's going to be so hard for theaters to suddenly figure out what new films to program, et cetera, et cetera, and reopen. It's like, we don't have that problem in the sense that we've already got some ideas as to what we would reopen with and, and how to get people back in. And, you know, obviously we would have limited capacity in the theater and you're already investing in precautions and things like that. But we don't know when that date will be. We just don't know, you know, and and it won't be, you know, if they were to announce today, okay, you can open on Friday. We're not reopening until, you know, we feel that enough is in place, enough has been discussed to where I feel like it is a safe thing to do. What that is, I don't know. That's part of the thing. You know, one of the boards was like, 
is that, you know, a vaccine necessarily? I'm like, maybe not, but just some sort of idea that we have figured out enough about this that I know that if we take these precautions and make sure people do this and that, that we're doing this and that, the likelihood of contagion is, is limited, you know, whatever that means. And, you know, we're still finding out more and more about how airborne it is, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, in the meantime, I just can't wait, you know, that's where the drive-in and streaming and fundraisers and other things we're working on and that's where those all are born from is I don't want to wait until we're told, you know, it's safe to do this. Um, you know, and going back to your earlier statement about how long streaming will last, I kind of like, and I've heard that this conversation is happening more and more. We only have two screens and there are occasions where we're programmed in advance and something comes along that is just remarkable that I'd love to share, but we don't have a screen for it. I would love to see a future where if there's a smaller distributor and they've got a smaller film, let's say We Are Little Zombies is opening and we're like, oh God, I cannot give you your opening two weeks because we're already stacked. Are you doing VOD on this one? Yes, we are. I would love to see where, you know, we've talked about calling it Auditorium 3. So, you know, on our website, you've got one and two, which is at the theater. And then we've got a special page for you know, Auditorium 3, which is all of our streaming movies. I don't see where that platform has to die, you know, especially if these art houses, distributors, I should say, continue to want to work with art houses like in this fashion. It might continue to be a, a cool and innovative way to allow art houses to share more films and what their theaters can hold. Same with the drive-ins. I don't see why that would necessarily have to stop. But, you know, while we're closed, we're we're pushing both. Russ, can we license Paula, I don't, I don't want to wait, the Dawson's Creek theme? It's the outro music. <laughs> How expensive would that be? We can just, you know, slow it down by half a step so that the algorithm doesn't automatically detect it, and then we should be fine. <laughs> Ru- Russ, you just sing it. I am not going to do that. <laughs> Here's a tip. I have never seen maybe more than a TV ad's worth of Dawson's Creek, so... I'm not qualified. I love how that what we've talked about this episode has been um, society, <laughs> merchant ivory, cats, and Dawson's Creek and Mandy. <laughs> Dawson's Creek could have used an ending like society. Yes, then I would have seen Dawson's Creek, obviously. Uh, Brian Yesna's Dawson's Creek needs to happen. I'm going to reach out to Barbara Crampton right now and see what we can make happen. Logan, thanks so much for joining us. I know that whenever theaters open back up in California and whenever going on an airplane isn't quite so scary, I definitely want to go to the Frida. Oh man. We'd love, I would love to welcome you. Maybe you could even do like a, a weekend where you program the theater. Oh man. Oh. Just, just don't, don't I'll, cause I'll do it. I, I'll play Bugsy Malone all day. Bugsy Malone and, and society alternated just constant rotation. Oh my God. Bugsy Malone and society double feature. Uh, we'll get Sean Colvin or whoever's saying, I don't want to wait to come out and introduce the, the event. I think just bring it all full circle. This can come together. Yeah, we can we can make this happen. People will be so confused. <laughs> confusion sells. I'm all for it. It's a very good point. <laughs> the Frida Cinema, Confusion Sells. Thank you, uh, Logan. This has been great. Thank you for listening to the Box Office Podcast, which is produced by Caitlin Kehoe and recordeditpodcast.com. This episode was written by Rebecca Polly and me, Ross Fisher, and narrated by the two of us as well. You can find the Box Office Podcast on any podcast system of your choice, which you probably already know, because that's probably how you're listening to us right now. Join us again next week when we will continue to chart 
the reopening process as we move into the fall. Thanks.